Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We'll be looking again today at the Office of the Ministry. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we left off on page 29 in the text, and we're looking at part one, the legitimate and ordinary call of ministers of the word and of the sacraments. And we recall the connection given to us in the Book of Concord, where you have the Doctrine of Justification, Augsburg Confession, Article 4, foundational to the Reformation, foundational to the Christian faith, of course, and the truth of this article had simply gotten obscured, covered over, twisted, distorted, and otherwise mangled until the time at which it needed to be dusted off and resorted and put back into its central place within Christianity. Now that doctrine of justification that we're not righteous in God's sight on account of our own worthiness, works, or merit, but rather solely for the sake of Christ and Him crucified, this message, this good news of the gospel that our sins are completely and fully atoned for by Christ, that we are reconciled to the Father, that we have been restored to everlasting life, This message then goes forth through the office of the Holy Ministry. That's the connection between Article 4 on justification and Article 5, the office of the ministry. And the way that that gospel is communicated is through the word and through the sacraments. So hopefully that's all review and rudimentary to you. But just as as you look at the title on page 28, you can have your mind refreshed about these most central uh, teachings of the scriptures and of course of the Lutheran confessions, that this is in regard to the legitimate and ordinary call of ministers of the word and of the sacraments. Now, without going into any further review, just picking back up at paragraph or question 11 on page 29, the question asks, for what reasons... Is it so very important that a minister of the church have a legitimate call? Answer, one must not think that this is done by human arrangement or only for the sake of order. Now, this may have been particularly provocative in decades past. I think it's less so today. But important that we not think of the office of the ministry in this way. And again, this, I think, became popular in the LCMS somewhere in the 80s. It never was a majority. It was always put down because it was seen to be an error. But this idea that every baptized Christian has received the pastoral office, but since we can't all do the pastoral office because, you know, there's only so much room up there by the altar... (laughs) (laughs) For the sake of good order, we have to elect someone to do that. Um, Obviously, I hope that that idea is biblically absurd to you. I hope it's absurd to you via our confessions. But then also Chemnitz uh, making that point clear. That obviously, 
the uh, call is not done by mere human arrangement or only for the sake of order. If that were the case, I think the pastor would have to say something at the absolution at the beginning of the service. He'd have to say something like, in the stead and by the command of the voters' assembly. I forgive, I forgive you all your sins. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what's in view here. So, <clears throat> again, and not meaning to be completely redundant or elementary, but through baptism we all receive the royal priesthood, which the scriptures describe as a priesthood of sacrifice, offering spiritual sacrifices, laying down our lives for God, um, offering our lives up to God as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to Him, but laying down our lives in service to our neighbor, and that takes on vocational shape and form. And of course, as we go about our business within those vocations, and here again we're using it in the technical theological sense of vocatio, the divine calling to certain orders of life. Uh, Are you a parent? Are you a child? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a worker or a manager, etc., etc.? Okay, that's what we mean by vocation. And as you engage in your vocations, then to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, so These are the kinds of things that are foundational to us as baptized Christians. And by the way, these are things that, that don't go away. They're who we are as baptized Christians. And that's true even of a man who holds the pastoral office. Um, I'm not ontologically a pastor. I think that that would be a confusion in categories. It would be cleaner and clearer to say that a pastor is the office I hold. Okay, so what it, my ontology is, is a Christian. That's what I am. That's what you are. If you want to go one step further in that, we are, because we are Christians, we are royal priests. You can't be a Christian and not be a royal priest, you see. But you can be a Christian and not be a pastor. So, see, there's a categorical difference. Um, And that means that, so just take a man who's in the pastoral office. He is a royal priest whether he's in the office or not in the office. Make sense? Okay, so that's foundational for us to understand. And And then God, through his church, calls certain qualified men, according to his good pleasure, to serve in the pastoral office and role. But that pastoral office and role... Also, all indications are that that's temporary in the sense that you don't go to heaven and be, as a pastor, right? In heaven, there's simply the Lord Jesus who is the good pastor. And of course, that's true on earth. He just on earth works immediately through men he calls into his office. But all indications are that that's not the case in heaven. So I'll be looking for a new job. I've been eyeing uh, the gardeners. I think that looks kind of nice. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a, an important part of how we view the office as an office and not belonging to any one man, not becoming a part of his ontology, his very being or essence. Um, deeper than that, more foundational than that, is the royal priesthood. And the royal priesthood endures forever. So that when we go into heaven, whereas a pastor ceases to be a pastor, all indications are, 
he sets aside that office and vocation. A royal priest never ceases to be a royal priest. We're royal priests here. We're royal priests in heaven. In what sense in heaven? Well, we're gathered around the throne of God offering praise, the sacrifice of praise. Maybe worth just stating tangentially, in the Old Testament, as we're talking about the royal priesthood, in the Old Testament, when we're talking about the priesthood proper, uh, the uh, Levites, um, that priesthood that that are drawn from the the tribe of Levi, uh, and again, not all Levites are priests, but all priests are Levites. So the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood Um, is given two different kinds of sacrifice, and thus the people are given two different kinds of sacrifice. One is a sacrifice of atonement or forgiveness of sins or propitiation, that kind of language. And the other category of sacrifice is thanksgiving. So there are two kinds of sacrifice in the Old Testament, fundamentally so. Right? Why is there no more Levitical priesthood? Because Christ offers the one sacrifice for all. And so there is no need to offer any further sacrifices of atonement or propitiation or forgiveness. Christ has done it all. There's no more blood of bulls or goats or anything else that needs to be shed. But what remains are the sacrifices of Thanksgiving. So we can think about this in terms of justification and sanctification, that the sacrifice in in the sphere of justification has been accomplished. In fact, that sacrifice that Christ accomplished on the cross once and for all, he makes present tense to us and distributes to us in the service of the sacrament, in the Holy Eucharist. So we become recipients of that atoning sacrifice, that blood literally cleansing us from our sins. Make sense? To which we respond in sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Okay? So you can see that the emphasis is on what Christ is doing for us. Our response is a sacrifice of praise. But to have those two different categories of sacrifice. A sacrifice of praise doesn't make any atonement before God. It doesn't further one's status before God. It's exactly as it sounds. It's simply a response in saying, thank you. Make sense? Okay. You can see remnants of this in the divine service, of course. I mean, more than remnants. You can see the structure of it. Um, in terms of viewing uh, the, the sacrifices, if you will, as the sacrifice of atonement or forgiveness being done by God to us and the sacrifice of our praise and thanksgiving being done by us to him in response. You can see this to a large extent embodied in the pastor as he's standing in the chancel. Which way is he facing? Now, our modern sensibilities say, well, you should never turn your back on the audience. And that is, in fact, one of the things that makes visitors uncomfortable. Why does the pastor have his back to us so frequently? He shouldn't, he's up on stage. (laughs) 
<laughs> he shouldn't be turning his back to the audience. Well, what's going on there is not Western entertainment, let alone anything going on at a stage. It's the Holy Chancel. It's the holiest of holies because Christ has come present and dwells there. And what the pastor is doing is when he is speaking um, with the people and for the people, he has his back to the people. Why? Yeah, we're all speaking to God together. We're all facing God. So you can think of, now this isn't a sacrifice of thanksgiving, really. I guess it is kind of a fruit of faith. I just don't want to get into the argument. But we're all facing forward, facing the altar at confession, absolution, even the pastor. Why? He's there confessing his sins right along with you. At other times where we're confessing the creed or singing the intro it or singing hymns or offering prayers, we're all facing the altar together because that's coming from us to God in response to what he has done for us. Okay, make sense? All right, and then when the pastor turns and faces you, now he is speaking from God to you, with some exception, okay? Like when the pastor says, the Lord be with you, um, that is in fact the pastor desiring that the Lord's abiding presence would be with you and that he would be with you, particularly because of what's coming up next in the liturgy. It's sacred and holy and even carries a certain amount of danger to it. And the congregation responds here not to God but to the pastor and says, and also with you, or and with thy spirit, okay? And that is the congregation saying, and the Lord be with you individually to the pastor, recognizing that what's going to happen here is profound and potentially dangerous. The living God is present with us speaking his living word. The living God is present with us giving his body and blood in such a way that wrong participation in that may result as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, in weakness, sickness, or even death. So it's no child's play what we're doing. And so we're blessing one another with the Lord as we engage in this serious uh, liturgia or liturgy. Okay, so the pastor will turn and face you when he proclaims the absolution. Not because it's his absolution per se, but rather precisely because he is in the stead of, in the place of, and he is speaking by the command of Christ, forgiving your sins, God's forgiveness communicated to you. Um, Same as uh, at various other parts of the liturgy, obviously the readings of scripture, the preaching of the sermon are all done to you as the pastor speaks in the stead and by the command of God to the people. All right, so if I haven't lost you then, the way that we talk about this in liturgical studies is beneficium and sacrificium. Okay, So beneficium is any blessing in the divine service that comes from God to us, and that usually comes through the pastor. Or at least that's where it's easiest and most concrete to locate, the beneficium. The sacrificium is then when we turn in response and give thanks and praise to God. Okay, that's the people to God. So you have this dialogue going on in the divine service. By the way, I mean, I grew up in the LCMS, and because of my own sinfulness and blindness, uh, I didn't realize this until probably seminary. I kind of conceived embarrassingly of church as, well, we all 
sit in a room. God's kind of nebulously there. We sing a bunch of praises to him. We read a bunch of scriptures that remind us of him and teach us about him. Notice, teach us about him, (laughs) kind of language. Um, And we have communion, which of course is his gift uh, to us, but I didn't think too much of that. And it was all very much a human-centered, communal activity. And that's about all there was. God was sort of everywhere and nowhere and not really doing anything, maybe passively receiving our praises. That, as I came to learn, is really how American Christianity sees worship. But it's not how the Lutherans, the Church Fathers, the New Testament authors, the Old Testament temple and all of that, it's not how God's people have ever conceived of worship. Rather, they conceive of it first and foremost about God coming present concretely and specifically in the midst of his people, And God serving his people, um, either by word and sacrifice in the Old Testament or by word and sacrament in the New Testament, and then the people in both Testaments offering their sacrifice of praise. But in other words, what's foundational is a real conversation, if you will, conversation in air quotes, taking place. God speaking and doing unto us and we responding in kind. It's the real reason why the hymnody is selected to fit the texts and themes of the day because they're appropriate responses to what God himself has just said to us in his holy word or what God himself has just given to us in the holy sacrament. Then we, the hymns we sing and the responses we say are fitting and apropos and are based on that so that the conversation is initiated by God and then returned in kind by us. Make sense? Okay, I don't mean to belabor that. I know that this is rudimentary to many of you sitting here, um, but hopefully it'll at least be a good refresher, and those who might be listening online can also be brought up to speed with how we look at these things. Okay, any uh, questions, comments, thoughts on what we've covered so far? Everybody okay? Here's one hand. Three things. One, in my experience in Wisconsin Synod, in which the pastor or someone aiding the pastor would explain the liturgy as we went through it. And uh, number two, can you explain how the Thanksgiving uh, occurred in Old Testament times, sacrifice of Thanksgiving and praise? And number three, how would the Roman Catholics interpret this whole system as opposed to what we think about it? Oh, boy, those are three great questions. Okay, (laughs) you're going to have to take me through them one at a time, though. I'm sorry. I've been feeling groggy and clumsy today. Uh, So... So where would you like to where would you like to start? You want to start at the with the Old Testament worship of Thanksgiving and uh, okay. Everyone. So like many of the grain offerings and incense offerings, there's specific there's a specific class and category when you go into Leviticus of the Thanksgiving offerings. Um, any offering that does not involve atonement or forgiveness, which is which usually then means not a blood offering. The blood offerings, by and large, are offerings of forgiveness or atonement. Okay, um, so that, does that answer that question? 
Okay, so what you can see, um, and this is a this is kind of a complicated history. I'm not going to be able to do it justice as as efficiently as I can possibly muster right now. Okay, the church fathers have no problem referring to the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice. Why? Well, because at least as a noun, it is. What does Christ give to us? His body and blood. Is that a sacrifice? Yes. So you're eating the sacrifice, you see. So at least as a noun, it's non-controversial. In fact, in in the very essence of receiving his body and his blood, what has been separated? The body and the blood via the Old Testament requirement of what a sacrifice is, you see. For this reason, and here's some language we've gotten confuddled about over the years, we'll refer to the consecrated bread as the host. Probably in most American minds, my own included at one point in time, embarrassingly, is we think of host as if then like Christ's body must be the parasite <laughs> joins to the host, or the bread is the thing hosting the presence of Christ. But that's not, in fact, what it means at all. It's short for um, hostia, okay, which is sacrifice. So when we say the host, we're saying the sacrifice. Okay? Um, so is it, as long as, I mean, just to keep things as rudimentary as I can, as long as we think of it as a noun, we are receiving the sacrifice that Christ made for us, non-controversial. Okay, do you remember in the institution on the night when he's betrayed what Jesus does? He takes these specific actions. He takes bread, breaks it, and gives thanks. It's, that's the language of uh, Eucharisto, I give thanks. Okay, Eucharist. And that's where the language comes from. But when he gives thanks, that's also a sacrifice of praise. So you'll find early church fathers speaking of the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice in these two ways. Okay, um, Now, where this all gets tangled, at, and it is a little more complex than I'm presenting, Okay, but where this starts to get tangled as the centuries progress is that Eucharistic pray, you know, sacrifice of thanksgiving and the noun of the Eucharist itself, the body and blood of Christ, get mingled in together into this is our offering unto God. And what gets tacked on upon that is, is if Christ is offering it to us, he's also offered it to God, so we're joining and participating with him in the offering of it to God. And you've just, as you can tell, you've invented the so-called sacrifice of the Mass, and you've turned the, what is a pure gift Take and eat, you know, from Christ to us, pure gift. And now you've turned that pure gift, gospel, into man's act and law, whereby we are now, you know, and isn't that just like us? So, not to get too broad now, but if you really diagnose worship, Christian worship, and where it's right and where it's wrong, where it's wrong is the gifts of God, the grace and the gospel, are transformed into the works of man, acts of obedience and sacrifice unto God. So gospel is replaced by law, God's grace with man's works. You can see this in the theology of baptism in some churches. 
You can see this in the theology of repentance in some churches. You can see this in the theology of the Lord's Supper virtually everywhere other than a Lutheran church or those who are tapped into that deeper biblical tradition. Okay, so that's probably the best I can do. Well, you're talking to the wrong guy, probably. Um, I'll deeply offend everyone, but what else is new? Uh, I don't like the phrase priest of all believers. Because A, it's not in the Bible. B, it's not language used in the history of the church. C, it's never once used in the book of Concord. D, it's never once used in the mouth or pen of Luther. Does it sound very historically grounded to you? No, me either. And usually how it functions is priesthood. Oh, that means the guy who preaches and administers the sacraments. Priesthood of all believers. Okay, That's frequently how it's used. So it's a non-historically vetted term, and it's an abused term. Now, properly understood, I have no problem with it. Priesthood, what priesthood are we talking about? Not the priesthood of preaching the word and administering the sacraments. We're talking about the royal priesthood of First Peter. Okay? And then if all believers are royal priests, no problem with it. But unfortunately, that's not how it's typically used. So I'm not a fan of the phrase, and you won't find me using it very frequently at all. Okay? Uh, Roman Catholics have no denial whatsoever, as far as I know, of the royal priesthood. They sh- would share that concept with us, that it is our duty as, Christ- as baptized Christians, as royal priests, to offer spiritual sacrifices. And that's Romans 12.1, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, they would view those spiritual sacrifices probably as meritorious. There you'd find a difference, okay? And we look at those as like fruits of the faith, not meritorious. That's a categorical error, uh, they're fruits of the faith. They're pleasing to God. They're a blessing to our neighbor. Um, they're good, but um, they're not meritorious. It's the wrong category. So that might be the biggest difference between the two, but, but not the existence of the royal priesthood and not the distinction from the royal priesthood and the office of holy ministry, which they confusingly call priests. That's why we Lutherans have gone away from that language of priest. And as you go back, that language of priest, to my knowledge, isn't all that common because we don't want to be confused on that. It lends itself to that kind of confusion. So we don't refer to those in our midst who hold the office of the holy ministry as priests because, biblically speaking, they were already priests according to their baptism. We're all priests. Priest doesn't make any sense. But to call them Pastor refers to the pastoral office because Christ is the good pastor, the good shepherd. Or even to call them um, bishop from episcopos or elder from presbyteros. Uh, Poimene is shepherd. Um, father has some uh, because they're the, they're, they do have a fatherly role in the church. <sighs> to, some, to some extent, though, lesser teacher You can see um, in the New Testament where those holding the pastoral office are sometimes called didaskaloi, teachers. Uh, Let not many of you become teachers, James writes, and that's speaking of the pastoral office. So you have many names for the one office, but priest ain't one of them because of the royal priesthood. Uh, Yeah, the holy priesthood, as Peter lays out. Make sense? 
God's people, by the way, have always been royal priests and holy priests, even when there was a Levitical priesthood. Because Peter, in 1 uh, Peter, when he's calling us all royal priests and a holy priesthood, guess what he's quoting from? Exodus. So even in the time of the Levitical, now you can see a parallel. Try to get this right. So, okay, the Levitical priesthood is going on, and that's like if you if you suddenly if we got in a time machine and zipped back to, I don't know, let's say a thousand uh, BC. Okay, you're going to have a clergy class called the Levitical priesthood. Everybody else is already called royal priests and holy priests. Zip forward to the present. You have a clergy class called those who hold the office of the holy ministry, pastors, and you've got still the class of royal priests and a holy priesthood. So those things are parallel. Um, keeping this in mind, this is a complete tangent and digression, but I'm still going to do it anyway. Uh, so keeping these structures in mind, it's, been, it's kind of been beaten into our heads, or at least it's been beaten into my head, that... Uh, Jesus is walking around, and you've got the Pharisees and Sadducees, the quote-unquote religious leader, leaders, and we immediately, in our minds, put them in the class of clergy. So you've got the clergy that are botching everything, and Jesus comes in and says, look at those foolish clergy botching everything. I'm here to give you the real stuff. And then we continue that narrative to the present day. Which, albeit, in some cases, is true. <laughs> that's exactly what's going on. But, strictly speaking, that's not, in fact, what's going on. Because the vast, vast majority of Pharisees and Sadducees are laity. They're not Levitical priests. There are some Levitical priests, very few of them, that are Pharisees. I'm not aware of any that are Sadducees, but who knows? Um, perhaps. But it is a distinct minority. The rest we would call laity. They're outside of the Levitical priesthood, properly speaking. Okay. So that should change and, and shift some things just when you, or at least the next time you hear a sermon where it's like those terrible religious leaders, oh, oh, you know? <laughs> so we've got the same problem today. You know, I don't know. It's not quite, it's not quite that one-to-one, although obviously we do have a, a problem in, of spiritual leadership in the church. Okay, so that's an end of digression. All right, was there was there anything else, or did we cover enough on there? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, there's a hand up front here. So, is is the Lord's Supper? the most important part of the, serv- of the service? That, that's a fun question. You get a lot of seminary students arguing about that. That would be a favorite. Uh, maybe after his John 6 sacramental, we would all fight about um, what's more important, the service of the word or the service of the sacrament. So it is somewhat controversial just in the sense that there's conversation and dialogue. But I think the safest answer, and one that at least everyone would tolerate, is why would you pit the word against the sacrament? Why not say, and, and this, is, this is actually, so this is my answer. Um, this is retained within the divine service itself. Divine service is a bit of a misnomer because there's actually two services. 
In fact, there's two services and a pre-service. The pre-service begins with the opening hymn, invocation, and confession absolution. That's the pre-service. The service proper, the service of the word, begins with what? The intro it. What do you think intro it means? Entering, intro. So there's the beginning of the service proper. So the pre-service is everything that takes place up to the intro it. The intro it is the beginning of the service of the word. Okay, and there's the first service proper. Then the, then we have. Um, remember when we <laughs> when we used to pass out the offering plates? There's this point in the service after the prayers. Usually, um, I think maybe in one of the settings it's before the prayer, so don't crucify me on the details here, but distinctly, right in the middle, after the service of the word and before the service of the sacrament, there's this sort of lull where the offering plates are passed. Everyone, as soon as they put their offering in and pass the plate, does what? Leans over and chit-chats a little. (laughs) And everything just kind of goes down for a minute, and the, and the pastor will, if there are announcements that need to be made publicly, that's where he'll make the announcements. Why? It's all right and fitting, I think, because we're right between the two services. Okay? Then the preface uh, begins the service of the sacrament, and that's the second service. We have an intro and two service. So if we were, you know, the, the misnomer, if we were to speak really technically or precisely, we would say the divine service is. What's the high point of the first service? The reading of God's word, which is the living voice of the living God. And then you can connect the sermon, as long as it's a faithful sermon, you can connect that. That's the high point, because that's God speaking to you. We're going to get into that here in a minute, but that's why Christ says to his apostles, whoever hears you, hears me. And that's why I even do something a little idiosyncratic in our service of the word, and I turn and I say to the people, um, please be seated for the word of the Lord, trying to emphasize that liturgical part. But of course, it's already written into the liturgy. No matter what, how the pastor introduces it, like, you know, the lesson for the 399th Sunday after Pentecost is, uh, is from such and such. Okay, well, whether he calls it a lesson or a reading or whatever else he might call it, it's more than that. And the liturgy teaches that. How so? Because as soon as he's done with the reading, he says, this is the word of the Lord. And everybody goes, oh, okay, thank goodness. I thought that must have come from some fictitious source. Maybe Huckleberry Finn or Charlotte's Web. I'm, I'm glad to know that's actually in the Bible. No, that's not the point. So when he says this is the word of the Lord, what is he saying? He's saying you have just heard the living voice of the living God. And the people say, thanks be to God. Affirming that they've just heard the living voice of the living God, even though it was just a sinful human being reading it to them. Make sense? So that's the high point of the service of the word. The high point of the service of the sacrament is obviously um, the institution and, and um, the receiving of Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins and joining into Holy Communion with him and with one another. That one's obvious, I think, right? So you would never, I think, pit one against the other. You would just say these are both the ways in which Christ is concretely present serving us. Remember what he says to his apostles, to those in the office of the ministry, whoever hears you hears me. So that means that Christ is there speaking through his 
ministers, his servants, and speaking directly to you himself. That's the key. And that's what makes divine service divine, okay. is that it is truly Christ doing these things for you. Yeah, there are Lutheran services that don't have the supper, right? And um, maybe the quickest way I can answer that is, we do. <laughs> God be praised. Uh, there may be reasons to not have that, but uh, to not have the supper, and we could entertain the merits or demerits of those reasons. But at least that's not an exercise we have to engage in here. Okay. Let's um, press on a little further. So just, I don't even think we got through the first paragraph yet. For what reason, this is at question 11, is it so very important that a minister of the church have a legitimate call? Chemnitz writes, one must not think that this is done by human arrangement or only for the sake of order. Oh yeah, that's what launched me off into outer space. But there are many weighty reasons, consideration of which teaches many things, and is very necessary for every minister of the church. Okay, first, or one, because God himself deals with us in the church through the ministry as through the ordinary means and instrument. And this is going to be key because how do you know that this is what God says to you? if it comes through the pastor that God has given you. I mean, that's, it's part of the surety of the gifts you're receiving is that you can be sure about the delivery system of those gifts. If you can't be sure of the delivery system, you can't be sure of the gifts. All right, continuing on. For it is he, capital H, himself, capital H, that speaks. So here Chemnitz showing forth what God's word shows forth, that it is God himself who is speaking, but not just speaks, exhorts, absolves, baptizes, etc. in the ministry and through the ministry. Okay, and then you've got a, a number of um, scriptures quoted here. Luke one seventy is just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Hebrews 1.1, now in these last days, he has, he has spoken to us through his Son. And then John 1.23, God crying through John the Baptist. Um, I found the, the references here in 2 Corinthians to be not quite of that much use. 2 Corinthians 5.20 is listed. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, So Chemnitz continues, It is therefore absolutely necessary that the minister as well as the church have sure proofs that God wants to use this very person for this his ordinary means and instrument, namely the ministry. Now, a legitimate or regular call provides these proofs. For in this way, every minister of the word can apply to himself the statements of the scripture. Okay, 2.5.19 of Corinthians was just 
read, and then, I don't know, I don't know that we need to go through all those. Isaiah 59, 21, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So insofar as the pastor is speaking with the words that God has put into his mouth, that is the word of God given to you. That being the point. Matthew 10.20, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Luke 10.16, The one who hears you hears me. That's the one I've been quoting. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. All right, that's probably sufficient to demonstrate the point. So off to uh, point two. Very many and necessary gifts are required for the ministry. Um, 2 Corinthians 2.16, I think I had better luck broadening that out. Which, by the way, if you go to look these up and you get frustrated, um, put a verse before and a verse after. Because sometimes the verses, I don't know if it's, Chemnitz by memory, or if it's translation or editing or what, but sometimes there is some wiggle room. So, 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. So, I guess that's the point. I mean, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So God's doing the spreading instrumentally through the apostolic office and then soon to be the office of pastor. He continues, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Obviously no human being. For we are not, Paul writes, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. That's also key. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So, Paul making a distinction here between peddlers of God's word and those who have been commissioned by God's word. So, a peddler of God's word would be someone who takes it upon themselves. And one who is commissioned by God has it placed upon him by God. Of course, that's where our language of ordination comes from. To ordain is to order. So a man is put by God under orders to be faithful. That's what an ordination is. You're put under orders. You're not your own man. You can't do whatever you want. You're under the orders of Christ. Or here, commissioned by God via Paul. Okay, so very many, this is back at two point, uh, sub point two under question 11. Very many and necessary gifts are required for the ministry. And that's the 2 Corinthians 2.16 we just read. But one who has been brought to the ministry by a legitimate call can apply the divine promises to himself, ask God for faithfulness in them, and expect both. The gifts that are necessary for him rightly to administer the ministry and governance and protection in the office entrusted to him. A3, the chief thing of the ministry is that God wants to be present in it with his spirit, grace, and gifts. 
and to work effectively through it. But Paul says, Romans 10, 15, How shall they who are not sent preach? Namely, in such a way that faith is engendered by hearing. But God wants to give increase to the planting and watering of those who have been legitimately called to the ministry and set forth doctrine without guile and faithfully administer whatever belongs to the ministry that both they themselves and others might be saved. Okay, fourth, the assurance of a divine call stirs up ministers of the word so that each one in his station in the fear of God, performs his functions with greater diligence, faith, and eagerness without weariness. And he does not let himself be drawn or frightened away from his office by fear of any peril or of persecution, since he is sure that he is called by God and that that office has been divinely entrusted to him. Okay, so in other words, a strong doctrine of the divine call is good for the people because you can be assured that this is what God has for you through this office and this man he's placed into the office. But then also good for the pastor because it reminds the pastor to whom he's answerable and strengthens and encourages him. I mean, both in a law and gospel way. You know, Okay, this is no child's play. I need to repent and take this more seriously on maybe in the law way, but in the gospel way to be encouraged that God is with you. And even though it may not feel like it or seem like it, especially in our context, he will prosper the work of our hands and he will um, make the ministry effective. All right, and then um, five, the final point. Finally, on this basis, the hearers are stirred up to true reverence and obedience toward the ministry, namely since they are taught from the word of God that God present through this means wants to deal with us in the church and work effectively among us. Okay, and yeah, I think that that, you know, again, it's, um, it's chiefly reverence for the office that's in view, but of course that redounds upon the individual who holds that office in that time and place. Um, obviously, like if he steps outside of that office and starts doing things that are contrary to that office, less than the office, more than the office, we can kind of cut that off, as it were, and say, that belongs to this man as an individual. It's not, a, it's not part of the office proper. But insofar as what he does is according to the office proper, then it's a divine blessing and gift that we can say, this truly is God to us through this office. All right, let me pause there, see if you have any um, thoughts, reflections, questions. Um, And if not, that's fine too. We'll just kind of keep moving along. One second, one second. Let's get you the microphone. Could you explain a little more what then did the Pharisees and Sadducees do, and why were they at the temple? Yeah, good question. Going back to the tangent from earlier. Yeah, the, they were basically both, um, in their own ways, sects with their own sense. So these, um, it's hard to find a parallel, especially like a non-offensive parallel, but a grouping of, of people who uh, obviously wanted to live with a certain strictness of the law In particular, that would be the case of the Pharisees. With the Sadducees, it seems to be a little bit more doctrinally and politically driven, their difference. But this would be like 
more or less a voluntary association where you're agreeing with this agenda, with these tenets, with these principles, and then what that looks like for your life. And the vast majority of people that did that were not Levitical priests. There were some Levitical priests that fell into those camps. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I don't know of any internal structure like that. You see Pharisees, at various times in the Gospels, you see like the Pharisees and Sadducees involved in the Sanhedrin. So when you're talking about the Sanhedrin, there you're talking about like a formal governing body of a theocratic non-state, <laughs> you know, I mean, a pseudo-state, a kind of state, I mean, because it's under Roman occupation and it can only do what the Romans allow them to do. But there is some governance there. That would be more like the formal structure, would be the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin and there were many Sanhedrins, by the way, but the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was the Sanhedrin and functioned in some ways analogous to like the Supreme Court. Okay. And then if you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee, you identified as such, you lived as such, you studied under such, you taught as such, etc. Okay, a, voluntarily, a voluntary organization, a voluntary involvement. And then um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, you know, ascended into power. I guess that'd be one way of thinking about it. And landed um, on the... The Sanhedrin, so the, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, you can see, is populated with Pharisees, and it, it appears to be a minority of Sadducees. At least that's the best of my knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Do you need a microphone, or is it? Well, maybe I can restate it. Oh, we'll get we'll get you a microphone. Hang on one second. Okay, this pops in my mind that uh, the Sanhedrin could be made up of political parties like it make it analogous to ours oh yeah there's, there's a lot of that okay and the other thing i'm thinking is oh da, 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 brain cage, da, da, brain oh this is of course all analogies fail but are the um brain come on the um I should say the mm-hmm. we're like commissioned officers and uh, or the p- pastors today. They're commissioned officers and those who go on their own volition and that kind of thing are like mercenaries. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, there is some mercenary. That's kind of like the peddler of God's word, this idea that why are they peddling God's word? Because in some way, shape, or form, they're profiting from it. And that is the case with a lot of the false prophets and false teachers is the main impetus to do this is because they're going to receive money from people who are going to support them. So it becomes a peddling. Even if it's, like, in theory, even if it was rightly taught, it's still a peddling of God's word. And so on the one hand, God be praised that the word goes forward. And Paul says similar such things. But he, Paul's not going to praise them for what they're doing. Right? So even if the word, like the end does not justify the means. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, please. Um, would the Pharisees and Sadducees be analogous to current day divisions in 
Judaism, you know, the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, were they, are they like that? or maybe, maybe in some ways. To tell you the truth, I'm probably just not equipped enough in my knowledge of modern Judaism to really make a tight, efficient answer for you. So I would say almost without doubt there's going to be some overlap, and yet they're going to be incredibly distinct just because so much time has passed, and not least of all the temple being destroyed in 70 changes everything in Judaism and in its self-understanding. At what point would you say uh, it becomes peddling? Like, for example, if if someone who is not called is sharing the word of God with others, um, at what point does that become? Yeah. yeah, it's a real controversial question today, especially with the internet and internet preachers. Um, at what point in time is it peddling? At what point in time are these men gathering and women? gathering pseudo-congregations around them, and in what sense are they sometimes uh, subverting the actual pastoral office that God has given to people. Um, Luther had to deal with a similar topic, although it's, it's, while it's more clear in his context, I think it can help shed light in how we ought to think about these things. And, and I'd be the first to submit to you, it's complicated. There's shades of gray. Sometimes it's much more like I know it when I see it. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's an ongoing conversation in the church. Uh, but Luther had this. So this was a thing that was going on after the Reformation. Remember, the Lutheran Reformation takes place, but you, that's the good Reformation. But then you've got the radical Reformation, and you've got all these other people going around being like, hey, if it's Roman Catholic at all, get rid of it. It's terrible. It's bad. And then they're developing their own, not biblical theology, but just anti-Roman Catholic theology. Oh, Roman Catholicism says baptism does something. Baptism does nothing. Oh, Roman Catholicism says it's the body and blood of Christ. It is absolutely symbolic. You can see how it's just a reactionary theology. It's not based in God's word. It's based in anti-Romanism. Okay, what's happening is you've got, um, now think, we don't have an internet. We don't have cell phones. We don't even have cars. You're in, a, you're in let's say, a small or mid-sized village or community you're the pastor there, all right? And ostensibly, everyone who goes to church in that town is going to your church, which is basically everyone. Okay. This is Luther's context. Everyone's basically baptized from birth and so on. But what shows up unannounced is a teacher who slips in and starts introducing himself and talking to people and gathering a crowd, but not on Sunday mornings, on Saturday nights, or on Tuesday afternoons. And he starts subverting the teaching of the pastor and subverting the doctrine and trying to draw men after himself and after his. Okay, So this is a clandestine, that was the language they used, a clandestine preacher, someone who sneaks in in order to subvert uh, and Luther, Luther is very informative on this point because it was then posed, well, what if, imagine the village where the one church is Roman Catholic, should a Lutheran slip in there and preach the truth of God's word over and against? Luther's answer might surprise you, absolutely not. 
That is not his office. And before we even get to the material issue of the right doctrine, we're at the formal issue of, do you have a divine call, sir, to be there saying that? So a fascinating uh, take, and Luther has much more to say about this. You can look it up if you Google Martin Luther and clandestine preachers. You'll be quite astonished. Um, He also does this in his Galatians lectures, in the early chapters there um, of that that text, uh, I think it's volume 26 in the American edition of Luther's works. Um, you, can, you can go look at that. But if you don't have an office, you don't teach. And you don't teach, in such, especially in such a way that you subvert the office. So if we take that clearer case and apply that to our day and age, you know, it's sort of one thing if a guy wants to do or a gal wants to do devotionals. It's kind of another thing if they set themselves up as a teacher of the word. It's especially, I think, a red flag when they start saying, and your pastor should be doing X, Y, and Z, or he's not a good pastor. And who precisely authorized you to say that and subvert that person's call, even if it's a Roman Catholic call, as Luther would say. So we've got a a bit of an issue and a bit of a rat's nest that we have to sift through and sort through, and at what time does someone's devotional writing cease to be devotional writing and start to become teaching or preaching. Put those two together, right? At what point in time does their enrichment of the body of Christ become a subversion of those who have rightly been called into offices of the church? And again, in many cases, it's a bit of a judgment call. I know it when I see it. The same way that sometimes it's hard to tell the difference at what point in time does nudity in art glorify the body and at what point in time does it objectify the body. And sometimes that can be hard to define. But frequently it is the case that you know it when you see it. Okay, And so I think that that would draw a parallel to a lot of what we're experiencing where you go, um, yeah, it's hard to draw the line on paper and someone's always got their what if or their but statement, but you can kind of know it when you see it. And it should be unnerving to us, I think. It should be an immediate red flag, I think. At least what I mean by that is we ought to be cautious. When a person has no call and no office within the church, but they've set up their website, you know, johnsmith.com, buy my book, subscribe to my social media, And then a big part of this is subverting the church that you're in. Okay, whether that's Lutheran or Roman Catholic or evangelical. These are all major red flags. And Luther himself is the one who sets those criteria. (laughs) This isn't the wit and wisdom of Rhodey. This is how Luther looks at a parallel situation in his own day. All right, so maybe sufficient there. Uh, Be careful with your online preachers. On the one hand, um, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of reading broadly, and I'm a fan of listening broadly. But there's a difference between that and glumming onto someone, and even if just subtly in your mind or in your heart saying, "Well, this person's got it exactly right." I'm going to listen to this person online above anyone else. When that's taken place, you can be pretty darn certain 
that something outside of the order God intends has taken place. And you ought to go back to the pastor that God has given you and deal concretely with the circumstances there. If he's got false doctrine, address it with him. Address it with those in the congregation who have oversight or his ecclesiastical supervisors that have oversight. I mean, again, these are the checks and balances that God builds into the church, whether Roman Catholic, Lutheran, or Evangelical, um, in order to correct the church. And if everybody's just kind of going off into the internet and finding whoever tickles their ears, nothing's actually being corrected in the physical churches themselves. You see, and so there's a corporate subversion taking place too when we do this. All right, I've gone over our time. We'll uh, return to this text, uh, page 30, next week. The Lord be with you.